I know what I can say and what I can't. <laughs> just just tell me what you really think of him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why are um, you beating around the bush, Melanie? Yeah. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by one of Vancouver's finest reporters on the political beat, a graduate of Simon Fraser University's communications program and Langara College's journalism program. She's held positions at Glacier Media as a reporter and at CBC Radio as an associate producer of Current Affairs, where her highlights included coverage of the B.C. provincial election for the early edition and the production of the five-day human interest series, Normalizing Burnout. She started with Star Vancouver last year when Metro News and Torstar joined to expand the Toronto Star brand across Canada. Originally, her focus was food, culture, and public policy, but after deep diving into the Burnaby South by-election earlier this year, she sunk her teeth into politics. Since then, she has been tracking the rise of populism in Canada, with a particular focus on the creation and spread of Maxim Bernier's People's Party of Canada, a reporter for Star Metro Vancouver, one of my favorite publications in this city. She is Melanie Green. Melanie, how are you? Wow, what an intro. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm stoked to have you here. That's why I'm super excited. That's (laughs) why maybe I conveyed some excitement (laughs) in that intro. I know you're not feeling well, but you've soldiered on, so I'm incredibly appreciative that you are here because you have insights into something that's happening in this city and in this country that as Canadians, I think we need to discuss. So before we pack a lot of these ideas, I want you to take me back a few months and I'll set the stage before we get started. So Kennedy Stewart, who is now the mayor of Vancouver, vacates his seat in Parliament in the Burnaby South riding in May of 2018. Eventually, we have a by-election called in that riding in February of 2019, and it becomes, excuse my French, batshit crazy. (laughs) And I don't think most people realize just how batshit crazy it was. I mean, you personally, you break the news that the liberal candidate, Karen Wang, sends out messages on the Chinese social media platform WeChat And she's telling her supporters to vote for the only Chinese candidate, which is her at the time, rather than Jagmeet Singh. And she says because Jagmeet Singh is of Indian descent, she ends up stepping aside, but then kind of regrets it afterwards. And then ex-BC liberal MLA Richard Lee steps into her place. Meanwhile, Jagmeet Singh, the first person of color to be the leader of a national political party, he's fighting for his seat in the House of Commons. If he loses, his leadership is basically done and the NDP has to figure out what to do. But he's not doing a lot of media at the same time, even though I know that like media was really after him for some hits. But his team was kind of absent in a lot of ways. And then you have Laura Lynn Thompson, who is a notable anti-Soji activist, and she's running under the new People's Party of Canada banner. And one of the weirdest things I thought was that she brought a laptop to a all-candidates debate, which was interesting, and she was reading off of it while debating everyone else. But, but more importantly, she 
takes the discourse into this really ugly turn by bringing up the murder of Marissa Shen. And and then Jagmeet accuses her of dog whistling and her supporters are disrupting these all candidates public debates with shouting out terrorist and Canadians first. This was just a shit show that should have garnered way more national attention because it was so spectacularly ugly. You covered this election very closely. You were on the ground. But you were obviously not immune from its ugliness either. You were seeing it firsthand. Can you put me in your shoes as all of this is going down in Burnaby South? Oh, geez. Yeah, it was. I want to say that it was wild and I want to say that it was surprising. But at the same time, I felt as though we were starting to see politically some of the things we were seeing in culture, whether that was on Twitter or on Facebook. And it actually was insanely fascinating for me to sit back and um, and observe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it got me thinking about populism real quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, it took me a long time to put out the piece that I did around populism because it required a lot of... um, a lot of work. And by work, I mean speaking to a lot of people. I think even just using that word, I was hesitant at first, sure. despite despite what I was seeing, because I too don't, um, as a journalist in my position, want to want a dog whistle. So frankly, it was wild. I think you just called it <laughs> batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what it felt like. What's crazy is that there was many candidates in that race that were of different ethnicities and you had a lot of different racial angles being played out and right from the start including with the the original liberal candidate have we seen an election even a by-election this racialized in recent memory in Canada? Yeah, that's something I was talking to a lot of experts about. In mm-hmm. my humble opinion, no. And I think that taps into conversations around identity politics and mm-hmm. the backlash to it, i.e. the rise of the rise of populism. Sure. Mm-hmm. How ugly was it? Because I, I've seen the clips. I know some people like Farhan Mohammed from the Daily Hive posted a clip when he was there at one of the all-candidates debates. You were seeing this day in and day out in terms of the debates, in terms of their events. Can you describe how ugly it felt or was it maybe just a clip that it was just a spot? It was just an instance. And I would that say was it? I would say how it felt was incredibly tense. Like the stakes were real high. Um, yeah. We were seeing sort of the rollout of federal platforms ahead of this October's election. And we were getting a glimpse of what was coming in. So I would say that was important when when we're talking about how ugly it was. Those debates, mm-hmm. it was through those debates that you started to see um, this emotive, visceral response. It wasn't your traditional political insider stuff or policy debate. It was based on emotion. And I think that to me was, I hadn't seen that before. I haven't seen that before in Canadian politics to that degree. Was this coming strictly from the crowd or was, and and I'm guessing it's one of the candidates, did you feel like one of the candidates was particularly playing up to 
that populism or just that visceral em- emotive state? I think state. politics right now, everyone's playing to emotions. Mm. So I'd start by saying that. And that is wherever you sit on the ideological spectrum. Mm. But was one candidate inciting that um, and, and sparking sort of those populist, let's say, rhetoric? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But the, all the other candidates had to respond. I mean, politics is a game for votes, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think Jagmeet himself was the main target in all of the ugliness that, that we, we were seeing? Or was it just a general anger? Yeah, that is such a good question. Um, in my personal opinion, no, I do not think that Jagmeet Singh was the target. I think he became so mm-hmm. because it was easy to use that as a launching pad to spout the same things. There is a cycle of what we're hearing from so-called um, the populist camp. Mm-hmm. And I think it was far less about Jagmeet Singh and traditional Canadian politics and far more about a rising sense of anxiety and anger and frustration and hopelessness. I want to get into what <clears throat> populism is, but mm-hmm. did it ever feel unsafe? Yes. Like, really? Yeah. Uh, I was with another reporter at the um, at the third debate, and we looked at each other and said we were shell-shocked. I was genuinely <laughs> shell-shocked. Um, it isn't the view of Canada. You know, it's, it's surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were times where I went, wow, this could escalate. To just, violence. And, yeah. and, and we'll, we'll get to that in the larger conversation of populism. But that is my personal concern. Yeah. Where do these things go and lead? And we've seen examples of that around the world. So, And, and I think a lot of people have been in that situation where there's something just palpable in the air, where it's not just someone who's upset. It's the feeling that this is now going to translate into physical action, into violence. Mm-hmm. So you felt that in some of these debates... Yes, especially the third. And it came from both sides at one point. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it was both sides. There were screaming fascist and chanting Canadians first. The crowd itself as a collective was angry. Huh. Was angry. You could could visibly see the candidates um, uh, unnerved. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I imagine, if there was violence and it was sparked from something a candidate said, Mm -hmm. then it becomes a big... Mm -hmm conversation about did this candidate incite right. this or and we haven't seen that yet knock on wood in Canadian politics to my knowledge we're getting close and that's what's so batshit crazy to me because the fact that you're sitting here you're on the ground you're seeing it and you're saying we haven't seen it yet as if it's in the realm of possibilities which you know I I believe that it is based on what we saw in Burnaby South that's crazy to me mm-hmm. because we've never, at least in my lifetime, and I'm in my mid-30s, I don't remember elections being this violent potential. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So let's let's pull it back and, and let's break down what you mean by this idea of populism mm-hmm. and populism emerging in Canada. So what is it? What does that mean? Right. So when I spoke earlier about doing the research, I think that was the fundamental question. And while I'm no expert, what I can say is what the experts are saying. And I think it's really important to understand that populism can exist anywhere across the ideological spectrum. That includes Mm -hmm. the left. That actually includes the center. And it also includes the right. Um, However, what we're seeing in Canada is the rise of sort of ordered populism or the rise of 
what some people call authoritarian or right-wing populism. And it's not necessarily new, I think, is what experts are arguing. And what it represents is, um, is a widening bridge and gap between Canadian values. And what that really means is, A, a sort of class conflict, and B, a conflict over the vision for the future of Canada, which sounds really melodramatic, but that is what's happening, according to experts. Okay, and, and you mentioned this idea of it being authoritarian. So mm-hmm. it sounds like, at least on this end of the spectrum, they want a strong man figure or strong person figure. Yeah, I think there's some media narratives out there or common... It's tough because, yes, we have a few things that I think may be stereotypical when we think of populism, like like a Donald Trumpian, you need a strong guy in charge, and it's a bunch of sort of lower income young white dudes who are who are pissed off because they don't have jobs, to be very frank. And mm. what I learned from this research is while that may be part of the case, um, the larger part is a frustration with the division of wealth, a sense of hopelessness. Mm. Um, an anti, a real strong anti-establishment, which we, I mean, we're in our mid-30s. We see that in various forms online or in social media, sure. distrust of the media or institutions. These are things that are shared in populism. Where it gets strange on the right is that it's a, it's a drawbridge. The reaction to this hopelessness or anti-establishment is, is this like magnified th- external threat. Like the outside, the others are are coming mm-hmm. and and um, I need to protect myself. This is where nativism and protect protectivism comes in. And so on the right, we're seeing it really emerge in anti-immigration rhetoric or fear around crime or not letting refugees into Canada. And this is a symbol of that hopelessness, according to Frank Graves, who who's the president of Ecos Polling, who I've spoken to a lot about this stuff. I guess what's so bizarre about this type of populism is that, like, I understand the othering and and sort of blaming these quote-unquote external threats. But when it's right-wing populism, the leaders and the political movements on the right are advocating for things that really help the elite class, we can call them, or the rich whether it's low taxes, you know, whatever it is, it seems like the economic agenda very much favors the elites and the mm-hmm. rich. But but I don't understand why someone would would make that disconnect. Leap. That leap. Yeah. Like I can understand the left-wing populism which is like let's just take care let's let's uh, nationalize the means of production and, you know, everyone owns everything. Anti-capitalist. Yeah, exactly. I, mm-hmm. That I understand. But this I don't because what what did they, what does the, what does this def, disaffected population, and of course we're speaking in general terms, but what do they think is going to be the outcome with, with a Donald Trump or a Maxim Bernier? Or... Yeah, I think the difference is while Donald Trump or Bernier's policies may favor sort of you know, lowering taxes on on the elite. They also mm-hmm. their rhetoric is not that. Their rhetoric is for the working class. And I think it begs this question. I've been looking into when did the working class swing to the right? Right. And why? That's actually the question I think you're asking. When did that happen? And how? Yeah. Because how do we marry those two ideas? And I think it's um, 
comes back to this sense of hopelessness and hope. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't. Ha- it doesn't. It comes back to this idea of emotion and this visceral reaction. Okay, you're up there. You're gonna. You're anti-establishment, and you're saying the things I need, and and I'm gonna vote for you because this party hasn't done X, Y, and Z for me. When do you think that the swing happened from what could be seen as a logical leap to the left, but now it's a logical leap to the right? I don't know, and it's something I'm researching. I think there are a few arguments out there. Mm -hmm. There's some arguments about sort of the Reagan era 80s and the fallout of that. But specific to Canada, I think um, there's a researcher out there who's been looking at this. I very much am fascinated um, because I think commonly the understanding is within the last four years. So we looked at Canada. We looked at just four years. Yeah, but I think Hmm. there's a historical relevance here that that may be missing. Yeah. You know? What I find interesting is that obviously we've seen this issue and and this movement come up in Europe. We've Mm -hmm. seen it in the U.S. We're seeing it in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I almost feel like Canada might be a little late to the game. Mm -hmm. But also we don't have, and maybe this is my ignorance and I could be wrong, but I also feel like we don't have the same issues as Europe. I mean, in terms of the migrants that Europe took in Mm -hmm. over the last 10 years, in terms of when you look at the U.S., the southern border and and migrants coming in through the southern border. Canada doesn't seem to have th- that in either case. Like, I know we take in refugees. A lot. A lot. And that is the talking point, I would argue. But is it co- comparable to Europe? Is it comparable to... Does it make you feel the same way? I think that's, what, that's sure. all it comes to. It's not yeah. a policy question. Yeah. You can kind of go crazy trying to um trying to rationalize that which is actually really emotional yeah and this is where it doesn't become traditional politics and it's and it's hard and that's why people dismiss it a lot but i mm-hmm. really think um uh canada is seeing a surge in a huge populist movement and by huge i mean the level of anger not the numbers mm-hmm. while i want to be clear this is still likely sort of a fringe we're seeing this across the ideological spectrum, which seems to be no longer linear, left to right, but sort of haves and have-nots. Because on both the left and right, where they actually agree is anti-establishment and inequality. But we're not seeing politicians directly address that, and that in itself is fascinating. Because there is a point to which they converge, but we don't talk about that, right? What do you mean there's a point where they converge? There's a point where whether you're on the left or far left or far right or center, within a populist movement, Mm. as we've just defined what that is, whether it's anti-establishment and a growing distaste for the sort of inequality, like the rich are getting richer and the Mm -hmm. poor are getting poorer, that's actually across the spectrum where people agree. And so what I'm saying is while we often hear the rhetoric be whether it's... um, immigration and crime on the far right or climate change and and sort of like social justice values Hmm. where they actually all agree is this idea of inequality and i think that gets lost in in just rabid arguments right and i don't think that we're seeing policy necessarily address where where we can where we can curb this rising angry movement and certainly in canada and the u.s at least for 20 years, there's been this increasing inequality right. between the top and the bottom. Right. This all fascinates me because even I, 
agree with that idea that this inequality Same. is terrible. And I am increasingly critical of what I call the mushy center. Mm-hmm. And it there's nothing that annoys me more in politics when there's a quote unquote centrist party that loves to wear its progressive cloak, but push through what I would call a right-wing agenda or a corporatist agenda or just interests that are not for the greater good of the constituents that they represent, but are directly benefiting their donors or people that they are friendly with inside the party. And Mm -hmm. I think there is that annoyance that frustration with, with we're talking this, about, with right? This, with the center. Absolutely. Right? And it hasn't worked, is the feeling. That yeah. doesn't work. And I think from the left, it's probably an economic annoyance in terms of, you know, you were mm-hmm. speaking all the progressive language and you promised all these other things, and but values. you did something else. Mm-hmm. And I imagine from the right, it's what are you doing with all this leftist progressive nonsense Mm -hmm. that we didn't build this country on or whatever. Right. Right. And a really big part of something that um, defines sort of far right or right wing populism is this idea that progressive values, when we talk about these like um, growing, widening gap of Canadian values, the Mm -hmm. idea is that over the last 40 years, progressive values have gone almost too far and that these ideas like family values or social conservatism Mm -hmm. are being lost and there's this backlash. And I think we can see this in culture, which I'm super fascinated with, even if you look at the Me Too movement and then the right, you know, you look at these cultural pendulum shifts and backlashes. And I think that's what populism is, essentially. Yeah. Who is joining these movements? Yeah, great question. Um, Still determining that. I think as we touched on, of course, we've heard, especially after the 2016 Trump, you know, it's it's um, lower income, quote unquote, less educated um, uh, white males. Mm-hmm. But what I've learned <laughs> in Canada is that that's not necessarily the case. And I think we we risk a danger of, of not recognizing that it's um, there's so many immigrants that yeah. that are so um, deeply moved and enticed by the goals of Canada's populist movement. And we see that within the PPC. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's the PPC's strongest argument so, so far when we get into these divided arguments of, oh, they're racist and xenophobic and bigoted. And, <laughs> right. and, and we lose the conversation again of what populism is and that anger and that hopelessness. We lose that conversation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the biggest misconceptions about who is joining these movements, I would say, is that they're actually middle income earners. They're immigrants. They're people who came here as either refugees or or whatever. And so then that begs the question, why? Right. Right. And I think um, that's what we need to really be talking about instead of sort of dismissing like, oh, they're just a bunch of like incels or pipeline workers or and I think we on the left we you know the the royal we make a mistake by doing that yeah it's like Clinton when she called everyone the deplorables I think that was a defining moment that allowed Trump to win yeah and that is interesting that you're saying it's you know middle income because that also goes against what we just said and and lower so don't get me wrong also 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 less educated, but also educated. I spoke to so many millennial males, for example, who have their master's or PhD that were disenfranchised with the Conservative Party. And, really? 
Absolutely. And they're moving over. Is this a a male-dominated movement? It seems that way. But I would say there are so many females in there, particularly, again, when we're talking about immigrant communities. Um, Quite a few females in there. And I mean, Laura Lynn. Sure. And I'm not denying that there would be females in the movement, in these parties. But it seems like when we look at things like the Yellow Vest movement that we had, when we look at some of these PPC rallies, like it's mostly guys, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know, and it, and it very well could be possible, I don't know the stats or whatever, but it could be possible that just men attend these things more than women. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But that's my curiosity of, of, I'm not saying it's all, it's always men, but is it mostly men? Yes, I'd say so. Also very curious about that myself. Um, <laughs> I am, I really am when we start talking about the demographics of who is joining these movements and why. Yeah. And I think it's a, uh, Again, it comes back to this idea of the linear idea left to right. I think now it's sort of people who feel haves and haves nots. Mm-hmm. If, if, if they're self-defined as sort of a have not and my values, whether it's my Christian values or my economic values or whatever has been left behind, I think they're flocking to the PPC. And, and not just the PPC, but the fodder to fuel this movement, this idea, the right-wing populism is greater than ever and more accessible than ever through the internet. So I'm thinking specifically of guys like Jordan Peterson and you Mm -hmm. have, you know, Maxim Bernier Mm -hmm. tweeting out Jordan Peterson clips. Like Mm -hmm. he's clearly aware of the audience he's going for. Mm -hmm. There's others obviously in that movement. I'm not going to list them out. I don't Mm -hmm. really know a ton of them, but there are others where they're very popular in the popular culture, especially internet culture, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And, this seems to be what what PPC, what maybe Yellow Vests, what these other groups are drawing from. Absolutely. And again, I know I'm beating a dead horse. That's yeah. that hopelessness and anger. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And I think that can look a few different a few different ways. And let me just add, um, the conservative party is also in its own internal battle as to how to draw this same pool of voters in. And hmm. we are also seeing some populist rhetoric there. And Sheer is having a tough time of, of d- doing that dance. So, I mean, this isn't only within the PPC. This is within Canadian society. Well, and we should also note at that point that Bernier almost won the so Conservative close. Party's leadership. And I've spoken to more than 200 PPC members at this point, and it is the first thing that they will always always talk about staunch conservatives yeah. who were upset he he lost mm-hmm. who loved his what he had to say who saw him as real and honest and sticking up for the man and sure. and he was really going to uphold conservative or libertarian values right right and and this was the draw this is the draw yeah right? it's it's interesting cuz one of the ideas of bernie's that i do love is this idea of ending corporate welfare ending the dairy lobby and the chicken lobby whatever Left and right can get on board with that. Right. And so, and that was one of the his core issues at first. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of started devolving into and all this other stuff. he started tweeting about multiculturalism. Yeah, multiculturalism. And then the trans movement, as he calls it, or whatever. And it just, I, I just started losing the narrative on what he was about. Because what I find interesting is, 
libertarianism in itself is not inherently xenophobic or racist oh, or anything like that. That's the best that. part. Yep, absolutely. But for whatever reason, it has become so conducive to bringing that stuff in. And I'm still confused why. Okay, me too. But here's what I can add to the conversation here. Mm. And it's something I've spoken to a lot of experts and just former PPC members mm-hmm. who self-describe as libertarian, who left when some stuff started happening a few months ago. Um But what I think we're seeing, and it's so fascinating, again, I'm going to pose a question to you. Can a libertarian also be socially conservative? And the reason I pose that Hmm. question is that, yes, we did see Bernier come out very strong with with libertarian principles. But Mm -hmm. then we started to see who, who voted for Laura Lynn. Tyler Thompson. Why did she? 10% of people voted. And that was not a libertarian voter base. That was a socially conservative base through church groups, through sort of all of the work that she had done previously as a vocal opponent of anti-Soji. So again, coming back, yeah, I think you're having a hard time navigating what Bernier stands for, because I think that is the question. To what degree is he courting this base? Or to what degree are they trying to marry sort of a social conservative values, which is this backlash to progressive values, right? This is the anger, Mm -hmm. but also maintain libertarian libertarian values. Right. How much of this is Trudeau's fault? (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't want to be the guy that says, thanks, Justin. But even though the economy is doing well, Canadian, you know, standards of living – outside of certain indigenous communities are is pretty good there is a lot of disaffected people with them and i'm one of them mm-hmm. you know i've probably been pushed a little more to the left as a result but i think there are people that again when we talk about the mushy the mushy centrist, center yeah he's that guy he embodies mm-hmm. that so well because he speaks this great progressive speak and it's symbolically it's great but man, when it comes to like sticking to certain principles or whatever, he's real loosey goosey, mm-hmm. right? So he'll like to condemn Saudi Arabia on human rights, but hey, we'll still sell them arms. Mm-hmm. He likes to talk up a big feminist and reconciliation game, but we've seen how his office treated Jody Wilson Raybould. Mm-hmm. How much of that is his fault? I think if you talk to almost anybody, yeah, <laughs> I think if you talk to people, um, Absolutely, the the blame is falling on Trudeau. But here's my question. I'm gonna sure. I'm gonna pose another question. <laughs> yeah, please. Here, but <clears throat> isn't that a problem? Is he not a product of an inherent issue that was pre-existing within politics, which is a conversation in this movement of values and economic policy and how to marry those and what it is to be in the center as a world becomes more and more polarized. And mm. so, while I am by no means standing up for Trudeau. You can if you want to. <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I'm saying contextually, um, yeah, I think part of this goal of centrism has caused a backlash. Yeah. I think that's all I'm saying. A part of the the chipping away from the 80s till now to really trying to meet the center, mm-hmm. and it's almost a tragic irony almost, has caused the falling apart of the center. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting way to put it. You you mentioned that you've been talking to some former PPC members mm-hmm. who were libertarian and ended up leaving the party. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the, uh, I'm assuming most of this is anecdotal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But what were their reasons for leaving? Why did they decide to leave? Was it 
because they thought it was a pure libertarian economic party and then it, the social conservatism threw them away? Or? Absolutely. That was a huge part of it. Yeah. But it comes back to that question you asked me earlier. Like, why do these sort of right-wing populists look for that authoritarian mm-hmm. leader? And in fact, it was like, Oh, there's one person that sticks with me. He's 17 years old. He's been volunteering in politics since he was 13. Hmm. Young conservative, you know the type. Started to follow Bernie. Helped set up all of his EDAs all across British Columbia. Really? And when I spoke with him, um, it's going to sound so corny, but he was no. genuinely heartbroken that who Max, who he believed Maxime Bernie to be he was no longer convinced he was that person. And so what I mean by that is that pendulum shift Mm -hmm. from those libertarian values, watching social conservatism, what he described as a lack of transparency from HQ, a lack of clarity around the party, the party's goals, the party's funding, the party's policy. um, Those things started to come up for those sort of, I would say like first initial believers. And, and that he, would be the theme. And he could see that as a 13-year-old. or He's, in, in now, his, he's now 18. Right, um, <laughs> but as a teenager, let's as say. As a teenager, yeah. Because um, it's easy to drink the Kool-Aid when you're a teenager. He's the one person I'm citing, but I also spoke to people who are in their 50s or people from Alberta to Halifax hmm. to Nova Scotia, Hamilton, Ontario, all across BC. I want to be clear. People have been reaching out to me so much <laughs> about yeah. this subject. And I use him as an anecdote, but the truth is this broken-hearted that Bernie wasn't sort of espousing the principles they thought he would be. And this these questions, almost like a almost like, you know, when somebody goes through a breakup and they're like, but why? <laughs> like you had this sense of desperation and, and, and heartbrokenness yeah. over it, which I found really interesting. So here's my question about the PPC then. And, and based on the fact that you're saying that a lot of people are falling disaffected with the PPC as and a well. lot are joining. And a lot of and we so, will get there. <laughs> so so that's where I'm going with this because mm-hmm. I think in the media we see events like Charlottesville. Even going before that, we saw the the Tea Party rallies. And we see these like aggressive, quote unquote, right wing movements that start to kind of balloon and explode and they're in the media a lot. And then they just kind of go away. Like we don't really hear about them afterwards. Is this movement kind of run its course and it's, it's no. just going to stay small or is it growing? No, I I personally do not think that, although I know it's a common a common narrative. And I've been speaking to these um, these researchers on extremism who've, mm-hmm. who are studying specifically extremism and the rise of it in Canada. And I think when we, because of the internet, first of all. So when we think <laughs> about, when you think about movements sort of growing, disappearing, we don't hear about them, not just Charlottesville, let's look specifically to Canada. Sure. Let's look at this year alone, you know, the convoy or the the birth and like sort of eruption of what the Yellow Vest movement yeah, became like, here. Or two weeks ago, we looked to what happened in Hamilton, Ontario, which happened at Pride. We had both far left and far right members. It erupted into violence. Right. There are charges pending. City councillors got involved. Like, I think it is a mistake to pretend that the fringe, when trying to access a political vehicle, which mm-hmm. is what's happening right now, can't become violent or gain power. I think that is a scary place as a journalist um, for me to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would argue that, and again, it isn't a numbers thing, like it's growing, but this sense of rage um, is growing. And that includes on the left, again. Mm-hmm. 
We see what happened in Oregon. Like, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And, and that includes on the left. I'm frustrated. The, these things, these anti-establishment sentiments, these frustrations over growing wealth inequality or policy, progressive policy being sort of redacted or moved backwards. These are things that I think people are sharing this like deep frustration and anger, you know? Yeah. I know I keep going back to that. No, no. I just think we lose it in the conversation, you know? And I think it's important to keep that central to this discussion Mm -hmm. as well in terms of why this is happening and trying to make sense of it, basically. It's it's interesting that this is happening now Mm -hmm. because, like I said, outside of some indigenous communities... People have it so good here, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not talking about per- people who have personal traumas or are in dire straits, but even if you're middle income, if you're even maybe on the lower end, like the quality of life, the opportunities, especially because of the internet, are abundant. And I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that there isn't frustration, but everyone most people in this country have something to eat at the end of the day, mm-hmm. right? They have some sort of sustenance mm-hmm. and they have opportunities and they have a social net as well that they can lean on. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying these systems are perfect. I'm mm-hmm. just saying if there was any time to be born in human history right now in Canada is a pretty good time. Mm-hmm. Is it, and again, we I'm sort of harking back to that that central theme that you have here, but is it because because of the internet and because of a multicultural society and an urban society, you're seeing people that are doing well and you're just frustrated that you're not part of that. Yes. I think that is a really big part of it. Um, And, and to get to what you just said, yes, of course we're Canadian and we have it good. And this becomes a conversation about privilege and then this Mm -hmm. and all of that. However, at the end of the day, if you can't pay your rent to live in Vancouver and you have six roommates and you're in your mid thirties and you're working two jobs and you're on the internet and you're watching Joe Rogan at night, just trying to understand your existence and you're pissed off, you know, I don't think you're thinking I have it really good. Like I have it so good. (laughs) I think it's hard to get to that place. And while I see your point, Mm -hmm. because when I first started covering this, I think it's hard to reconcile, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that said, when I started to really hone in on this idea of economic hopelessness and anger, I started looking to myself and going like, where is it frustrating, you know? And I can see to a degree how this happens. I can I can understand it. Yeah. I can. You, you, you name check Joe Rogan there. You're throwing him there. <laughs> Don't throw him in that group. Listen, he I has... get into so many debates about this. It's not Joe Rogan's fault, but unfortunately, much like Jordan Oh God! I mean, this unpopular opinion here. He's a gateway drug to these people, but I, I don't think he's an all right figure. I know he gets like lumped in there. No, 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 populist. And I think there's a difference when we're talking about extremism. We have to remember, like, there's there's a populist movement, and then there are extremist elements that sort of tend to try to enter a populist movement to find a political vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm talking about Joe Rogan, it's not like Joe Rogan's fault. You know? Yeah. But he is a gateway to sort of, quote unquote, radicalization, so to speak. This this extremism and, and the, the people that you've talked to this, the that are studying this mm-hmm. specifically, is this the same reasoning why someone would join a terrorist group? Absolutely. Or... They're terrorist um, researchers who worked 
in the States with bin Laden and CIA, it's absolutely hmm. their primary concern is determining qualifying this movement in Canada and their argument, and they feel pretty strongly and they involve intelligence services and bodies of the government, et cetera, that there is a potential for violence. And that is the concern. And we have seen that in Canada on both the left and mostly the right. Sure. We've seen that. Is it the same motivation or idea why someone would... And forgive my ignorance on this question, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. is it the same reason why someone would join a CrossFit club and go crazy with it <laughs> or join like something that's kind of culty? Like, is it is it coming from the same place or is it I is wonder. It that might be a question for a psychologist. But I mean, I want to say, yes, the sense of purpose and belonging partially. That's why mm-hmm. you might join a CrossFit club, but also to 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 find some kind of solution. I'm sick of laying on the couch, you know, like I gotta, yeah. I'm sick of this. I'm hopeless. I don't have my voices not heard. You know, my values aren't being respected. So I'll work out and get hot. I don't know. Like when we're using that analogy, I think it's a fair analogy. And, and, and maybe the idea of just being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Exactly. So you were doing something about it. Agency, right? Almost out of balance though. Yes. Right. Like you're just You've completely done a 180 mm-hmm. on your life in terms of how it's going. Mm-hmm. The, That's the really more interesting. the more I think about this now, like Jordan Peterson's Canadian, mm-hmm. Lauren Southern mm-hmm. is Canadian, mm-hmm. Faith Goldie is Canadian, mm-hmm. and these and the, I mean even the Rebel Media, which is a Canadian media outlet, quote unquote, has global reach. Mm-hmm. So there. There is something Canadian about this. That, that absolutely. Right? Like, I actually, you know, I actually want to retract something I said where I said, you know, maybe relate to the game, but it does seem like. That maybe we were also deeply in the game. Yeah. We're just not, you know, that big in numbers that we, we get noticed in mm-hmm. the same way. Mm-hmm. What is it about? I, I think Lauren Southern retired, but what is it about? Recently. Like, she recently yeah. retired. Yeah. yeah. What, what is it about these media personalities that are. That have caught on fire. I don't know. I think about this. There's something really Instagram worthy about it. Yeah. I know that sounds like a lighthearted thing to say, but you know, when we're talking about the world we're in now, especially through a political lens, it is the wild west. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I almost think, and, and sort of go back to the mm-hmm. last question, but I think the same people that are drawn to Jordan Peterson have a parallel with the people that would be drawn to like a Gary V. Right. Right. And mm-hmm. and I think the Gary V, it's much more positive. Mm-hmm. But it is that idea of like, I need to I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yes, I gotta absolutely. do a one eighty on my life. Mm-hmm. But they've just found that more appealing than Exactly. The Peterson. Exactly. I think that you nailed it right there. I don't know if I nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you know, again, it comes back to this thing I'm, I keep drilling down, which is that that sense. I'm sick and tired about being sick and tired. So we're seeing a big center feel that way mm-hmm. in Canada. Yeah. How that turns out when it comes to politics is becoming fascinating. Where that goes, right? Whether it's anti-capitalist or as we're discussing, and I think we're really seeing an emergence of is right-wing populism. And and then the next question is what that means, you know? Mm-hmm. It's attached to, we haven't even started talking about extremism in the context of the internet and foreign interference. And right. that our institutions are saying, you know, we have an election in October and we know that's happening and it's happening online. 
And the PPC, for example, they're not knocking on doors. I think coming at this party from sort of traditional political lens is a mistake because that's not where... So what are they doing? The internet. The same way we're talking about who are the Lauren Southern, the same people who might be interested there to go to Gary Vee. I think it's that. It's connecting strongest Twitter voices you'll see for each riding with the PPC. I don't know if you saw Rocky Dong's new was, video. He, he's very adamant that he's not Rocky Balboa. <laughs> yeah. He's Rocky Dong. And it's easy to laugh at, and I'm laughing, but the truth is... He doesn't twist his knuckles at the end of the punches. <laughs> what is he doing? The truth is um, they're not going for votes that that other parties are going for, and that is itself the point. It's all digital. It's online. And when we start thinking about... Um, our Elections Act being updated and foreign interference and funding models, it gets really wild. I think as Canadians, we actually really have to, I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist, but we we have to consider what that may mean. And that's not to put weight on how well the PPC will do. You know, when we, yeah. you know, it's not to say that, but it, it's to beg the question of it's a cultural question. Mm-hmm. It's a question of society. And again, Canadian, Canadian values like Frank, Frank Graves from Ecos, he often talks, he has this phrase he called two incommensurable Canadas. And Mm -hmm. he talks about this gap in values and this pushback against multiculturalism and this desire for stronger family values and how it comes out in in Islamophobia or anti-immigrant rhetoric, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we bring these two, like, how do we bring these two Canadas together again? Apparently, the center is not going to do it. People are pretty mad. No, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they they could. Uh, yeah. I don't know if they currently will. This foreign interference idea. Mm-hmm. So, so there are, and now I'm going to sound like a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, but you're uh-huh. suggesting that there are foreign agents, foreign countries, particularly Russia, but they're not the only ones, I don't think. Absolutely not the only ones. That like to essentially seed this discord by, Think about it, right? by feeding have... into extremist ideas as opposed to pitting the two centrist candidates against each other. They're actually mm-hmm. pulling it apart from the extreme ends mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Yeah, it's really cheap and it's really easy if you think about it. If you have a if you have a so-called bot farm, mm-hmm. you hire a couple people to argue with people on Facebook or Twitter all day <laughs> <clears throat> on on trigger words. Um, I spoke to a researcher, Marcus Kolga, who has studied this stuff, and he was saying the top four arguments are anti-vaxxers, climate change, pipelines, and immigration. So right. we're seeing foreign agents. This isn't a conspiracy. This is this is ha- happening. Mm-hmm. We've had the Canadian government say this is a concern. And, you know, they haven't released exactly what we've been tampered with. But it begs this greater question. When we're talking about the Internet, when we're talking about extremism or radicalization or just a sense of being hopeless and trying to find an answer and watching some YouTube videos, like how does one go? I think that is really the question from being frustrated and sick and tired of being sick and tired to... Being like, I want to murder every single Muslim. How do we radicalize hmm. there so quickly, right? Well, I almost think, I mean, if, again, and I hate to use this uh, this reasoning, but because the internet in the sense that mm-hmm. you stumble across a video or something and it catches your attention, you watch the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as it's done, there's like a suggested page mm-hmm. and you find yourself down a rabbit hole. The I've algorithm. Done, yeah. And I've done that. With stupid shit, mm-hmm. where I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, who among us hasn't? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, the other day, I was watching videos of professors scolding 
teachers. Like they were caught on camera and they're like <laughs> mm-hmm. yelling. They're, sorry, a professor scolding their students mm-hmm. and they're just like getting mad at their students. And, and I think the third or fourth video in, I was like, why am I watching mm-hmm. this? And I just caught myself in this weird rabbit hole mm-hmm. for no reason. So I can definitely see how that happens. It's interesting that it's happening in this regard to such a degree that it's become a movement, mm-hmm. right? There's and no, again, there's I no... would separate. I would separate sort of populism as a movement, and then how and extremism, because we're actually having two two conversations about two separate things. While many people who join the populist movement can be extremists, yeah, um, it's not quite the other way around. And so, what I mean by that, getting back to what we're talking about in, in terms of sort of foreign interference in this new world, this sort of the way politics is being played to this movement mm-hmm. and to bring it back to Burnaby South. I don't know if you saw some of the videos that came out, but they were fascinating. Um, there were videos from the debates that had superimposed Jagmeet's head on like a Dumb and Dumber video or one where um, Laurel and Tyler Thompson was fighting with him like um, uh, Angelina Jolie in Tomb Raider. It was a Tomb Raider really? scene and ripped wow. his heart out Whoa. with quotes. It's just these sound bites, right? And so when you think about where people are engaging civically now, which seems to be the internet, particularly this group of people most drawn to the <laughs> populist movement, yes, you know, to bring it all back, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big place. I think we're not, we haven't caught up as to even wrap our heads around what that means and what that means um, as a political vehicle, what that means to our democracy so much, you know? <laughs> I think we're still debating whether it's true or not. And I would, I'm here to say, I would argue it is true and happening here. And we kind of need to find some some solutions, you know? Yeah, and that's a good point because, you know, I came into this recording also not to, I wasn't going to question mm-hmm. you or anything like that, but with that idea of like, is this really a thing? Is mm-hmm. this true? And that's why I asked that question mm-hmm. of, you know, do we just see pulses of it and they kind of yeah. recede? And they do. Mm-hmm. And they do. And again, I would say it's less about the numbers, but more for me and I think a lot of people who are, concerned about this again it comes back to this values and then where does it go because things Mm -hmm. don't disappear as these experts and these researchers that study terrorism and extremism tell me they just go underground and resurface Mm -hmm. right and so where are these groups resurfacing why were we seeing soldiers of odin join the yellow vest movement we need to start looking at those as threads and seeing how they repeat in Canadian society to better understand them. So that was going to be my next question. When we talk about these groups and these movements, can you identify the groups that we're talking about? Obviously, we've talked about the PPC. Mm-hmm. Which is a political which party. Which is a political party. And then there's extremist groups. And so can you run me down maybe the the larger groups or the more prominent groups that, that you've encountered think, in your research? I think, yeah, the top three would be the... Um, the Soldiers of Odin and their spinoff, sort of the Wolves of Odin and several groups that have spun out of that. Hmm. The Yellow Vest movement. People who are formerly members of sort of the Proud Boys. I don't know if you remember hearing about them, Gavin. Yeah, you the know. Gavin McInnes. And they uh, sort of resurfaced and split off into three groups. And then there's well, also... Yeah. And then there's also... What are also, those three groups called? It's uncl- one that is quite violent to what I understand. I haven't done a ton of research on them, but they do have a a um, base in BC, I have been told, in Kelowna, and they're called the 3%. The 3%? And they're Meaning... more a neo-fascist group. Like oh. One would argue they're 
they 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 are white supremacists mm-hmm. and they are training. They do gun training. They walk around and do walk arounds in the neighborhood, just like Soldiers of Odin did in Gastown a couple of years ago. Hmm. So I think um, I think, yes, these groups disappear. And yes, these people resurface. And there is a fair question and conversation about whether we give them space to grow or not. And is deplatforming an answer and what happens and where people radicalize. But I do think this is a conversation still to be had. And I think there's a lot of groups we don't know. Okay. You know, so, so soldiers of Odin, yellow vests. And I'd say then, the three percent. And okay, the three percent are the the what's it the uh, proud boys, proud boys that have split yeah, off yeah. into several different groups. And I think you mm. know, there's also the two groups that the Canadian government just put on a list for the first time: Blood and Honor, I believe. And so, and and they have more reach, to my understanding, in Quebec. But I, I'm just this is all to say it's not isolated, and these extremist movements themselves as they exist so much online as we've been seeing in all these Christchurch or whatever mm-hmm. um just reform and reshape and reshift right that's all that happens like i was doing a story on on um on someone who'd experienced a lot of online hate after speaking to trudeau about white supremacy and there was one group in particular that was putting out that a doxer which was re- you know um releasing her information or putting memes of her her face. And that she was were, really young, right? She was young, super. I, I was on the page for hours. Hmm. I had screenshot stuff within 24 hours just from putting in a media request to Facebook and trying to determine where this group was because they had no admin, they have no geotags. Hmm. Facebook doesn't require them to. That group had disappeared. I asked the researchers to find them and some of the most prominent members had resurfaced in other extremist private groups, right? So we need to understand what is really happening here. Hmm. Are people just, you know, I think sometimes we have this flippant idea like, oh, they're just a bunch of trolls. And it's true. The loudest part of Twitter is probably 5% of our of our population. Sure. But when it comes to this. That's per- generous too, you know? I think. <laughs> Yeah, same. But, but, but for me, the interest is not so much the numbers. It's A, do extreme values find political vehicles? And B, what is really happening in Canadian society? Mm-hmm. I think that's an that's an important conversation. Have you I mean, you've obviously talked to former members of both the PPC and these extremist movements. And mm-hmm. I want to focus on the extremist movements for a second. Have you talked to people that are and or had interactions with people in those groups? I have spoken to. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, allegedly a lot of those groups have in certain writings, quote unquote, taken over the. PPC allegedly. And so um so you're seeing this marrying of that and I have spoken to members current members of the Soldiers of Odin. I will say as a person of color it's not the easiest sort of thing to break into no. those groups. Um Good for that takes a but, lot but of But the flip courage. side being it's also really easy. It's surprising when someone decides they want to speak that they'll speak, right? But do they love it? Do they love that idea of, hey, there's someone from the press who wants to talk no, to us? No, no, they're anti-stat. No, they hate. I mean, I I would argue psychologically there must be some sort of love of it how to, does, to speak to me in the first place, right? How, how do they receive you? Because you are a woman of color. Mm-hmm. You are looking at these movements and you're looking at these groups and from a very critical lens. Mm-hmm. How are you personally received by these groups? With the exception of the media team at the PPC, um, I've honestly, I will say that I have not experienced from the people that I'm speaking to directly any sort of um, hate. Really? Okay, at all. That's good. Now, I have experienced a vast amount of online hate. 
Um, I've had a couple death threats, but but that You've hasn't had a couple death threats. You're just <laughs> yeah. shrugging that off. Just a couple, yeah, just death a couple threats. death threats. One's actually really interesting. It was from Lauren Southern's stalker. Actually, it was when I was <laughs> doing a story. Wait, <laughs> yeah, maybe we might need to circle back to that. But yeah, but that in itself is um, interesting. But to get back to your question, I actually haven't. I expected. Um, it's hard for me because I think there's a few ways you can start talking about this stuff. And I've appreciated this conversation. We haven't gone a ton into the xenophobia or the racism or mm-hmm. the bigotry. Um, that said, that becomes the polarized debate, which I'm going to try to just step away from. So I, I personally was surprised. I didn't experience any of that to my face. Fair enough. And that's good to hear. Yeah. I need to know about this Lauren Southern stalker story. I do not know what happens. Actually, that's interesting. Yeah. What's interesting about that is I was doing a story that I think this what we're seeing spark up on campuses over the last few years, this debate over free speech and hate speech. Mm -hmm. I think this is actually the basis of what we've been talking about when we're talking about who's online and who's looking to determine and whose values and who feels backlash. Mm-hmm. That is a huge part of this sort of conversation around populism and extremism, this debate between free speech and hate speech. And so I was doing a story, Lauren Southern was speaking at UBC, a group wanted to bring her down. Right, right, I right. tweeted at her legally. I need to get her comment as well as Stefan Molino. And I wanted mm-hmm. to, I wanted to get her comment. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we had spoken, yada, yada. I did get comment because I had tweeted at her. What ended up happening, I won't go into this too long, but my email and my phone and my work phone within an hour and a half was flooded. We are talking hundreds and hundreds of emails, like really? from like, excuse my language here, like, fuck you, you left wing cunt, to Holy I'm going to string your head up. But what was most fascinating but is I started- But you just tweeted her for a comment. You didn't- I didn't even tweet. I just said, a reporter here trying to reach you. Here's my email. So made that mistake, deleted the tweet. Emails continued to come in. Within four hours, there was one particular person who was repeatedly emailing me. Mm -hmm. They first identified themselves as Lauren Southern's partner and boyfriend and said that I wasn't speaking to the real Lauren Southern when I had interviewed her and emailed. And in fact, that was an imposter. So first I had to fact check Hmm. that. The email step kept coming in. Very long story short, and it is a wild story. This person turned out to be her stalker. The VPD was aware of this person who lived in Washington, D.C. Lauren Southern herself had a VPD file because this person has threatened her life a number of times. Whoa. And I had to then reach out to Lauren Southern because he was also threatening my life. First, he First, he pretended to be Lauren Southern. Then he pretended to be Lauren Southern's partner. Then he finally admitted that he wasn't. Then I had gotten confirmation from the VPD that there was indeed a stalker. So I emailed back and asked, are you this person? And, you know, their email back was they were going to murder me. That was oh all within God. that was all within four hours. And so I think another thing. Did you people, talk to Lauren directly? Yes, I did. And I think another thing that people don't realize is what it is to report in this world of misinformation and legalities and people that are litigious. Yeah. And I think there's uh, so many interesting conversations to have about due process and and where the media actually is right now. And there's so many things I I haven't been able to report, you know? No, fair enough. And the level at which the misinformation um, comes at you yeah. is wild. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a new world. That's that's a crazy story that you would just 
ask for comment and then be flooded with stuff like that. Flooded. All of her supporters, all at first. Did you, how long did you talk to Lauren Southern for? Did you tell her, like, this is crazy, I can't believe the, what I found myself in yeah. by just trying to get a comment from you? Yeah, and yeah. And what, what was her She take? was, um, honestly, she sounded scared. Uh, and yeah, she said, you know, you need to call the police or she was the one who told me there was an open police file. And then I wasn't certain I had to fact check that. So I had to call the police. Right. I I myself was, um, a little shook because I was trying to determine what was real and what wasn't real. I mean, I don't know Lauren Southern. She sounded scared. She sounded concerned. She said, this is me. She said, let's FaceTime so you can confirm it's me. Like she she did a few steps for me to basically verify that I had indeed spoken to Lauren Southern. I'm hearing myself and this sounds so wild. Um, it is wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely wild. Mm-hmm. And I think two months later she retired. And I think she I did, can't yeah. imagine what living that life of stopping migrants in the Mediterranean Sea and just that level of I I can't imagine. And I think when I'm also fascinated in that movement, how it's so many young, beautiful women and then sort of like older, like you look at the pundits of the far right movement and there's something really fascinating about that. You got uh, Ezra Levant and uh, Faith Goldie and Southern on the other side, right? Right. At that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just thinking... For Lauren Southern, and I'm I'm not making any moral judgments here. I'm, I'm setting yeah, all that. Trying as, to not to do I'm that. Setting too. all yeah. of that aside. Uh huh. But that must have been a crazy period from her. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's warranted or unwarranted or anything like that. But I'm just saying the amount of love, stalkers, hate, everything in between that you, that she's probably getting flooded with, not just on social media, mm-hmm. but people like, finding her. She's banned from the UK. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's a, and she's very young. Yeah, from and, Surrey. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Insanity. And it's some, insane. And again, we has has been one of the themes because the internet. Because the internet. Right. Yeah. She didn't have a mainstream mm-hmm. platform, or you know, didn't and, go to journalism school, and suddenly and became again, a hotshot. If you or, think about this, this anti-elitism and anti-establishment, why would anyone, anyone, the royal anyone, why do we want to listen? to those people. They haven't, you know, taken the world in a direction that's that's helped me. I want to listen to average people like me who really know. Yeah. That is part of this rise of citizen journalism and everything that we're seeing, right? And I can understand that to a degree. To a degree. Yeah, well obviously I mean as someone who's running a, a podcast right now, it's awesome yeah. that we with there's greater accessibility mm-hmm. and I can say, hey, I have an ad-free program, and hopefully some local people that you follow will be on the program. But yeah, it's definitely, it's interesting how people can blow up and right and And it's great. Like, the internet was supposed to be the great equalizer. I don't mm-hmm. think that in itself, and this is going to be an unpopular opinion with journalists, um, I don't think that in itself is a problem. Mm-hmm. I think that's helped certain industries through a rose-colored lens, but in the same breath, we're also seeing all these sort of social issues that we can barely wrap our head around. You know, we're talking about new things like surveillance capitalism and mm-hmm. and and how to understand social media platforms and the rise of what we're seeing is extremism or is it the rise or are we just seeing it more? And, you know, right. all of these conversations that are, there's no easy answer to. Yeah. Right? It, it reminds me of that idea of police brutality Mm. and there's been a lot more exposure on the internet obviously and then in mainstream media about 
particularly black communities facing police mm-hmm. brutality. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's always been there. Exactly. But now everyone has a camera and we're seeing it. Exactly. Right? So it's not necessarily, and I don't know the actual numbers, but it's not necessarily that it's on the rise. Right. But it's like now we just have a greater exposure right. to it. I think that's a big part of it. And and the more I'm in this conversation and, and learning from you, it, it feels like a lot of this stuff is we just now have a greater exposure to things that maybe we were mm-hmm. not aware of. To bring it back, though, where it becomes concerning in my newfound political beat is, mm-hmm. do these views get a political vehicle? And what does that mean for Canadian society? Yeah. I think that, you know, if we can have a conversation about multiculturalism. But, but, you're, that, but you're saying that they do have a political vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying they'll they'll win. But sure, I'm yeah. saying there's a real question about what happens then. The where do those? Yeah. And, and then where do those people go? Yeah. Bernie might have a seat. Yeah. He might win his seat. He still has a seat. Let's not forget. He's he an MP, right? Yeah, that's right. He has a seat. We got to sort of wrap this up. Mm-hmm. But but one thing I, I wanted to ask you was this idea of dog whistles. Right. You hear this idea that, oh, you're dog whistling. And even Jagmeet, you know, was accusing Laura Lynn Thompson of dog whistling. I've heard people accuse David Eby and Brad West right. of dog whistling. Mm-hmm. What is dog whistling? How do we know when we see it oh, or man. hear it, I suppose? That's such a good question. Um, it's not my favorite buzzword. It's mm-hmm. not my favorite phrase, but it's, you're right. We are hearing it so much all the time. And what is dog whistling? Essentially, I mean, Harper was accused of this in the 2015 election. We didn't use the same sort of language with with Kelly Leach, et cetera. But, sure. but this idea that there's specific um, words and ways in which we frame things to appeal to a base. So, mm-hmm. for example, Jigmeet um, with Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson accused her of dog whistling mm-hmm. to her base, R.E. Marissa Shen and this fear of crime and immigration. And when you think about immigration coming up in a Burnaby South by-election, yeah. like, wrap your head around that for a minute. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it, do- it doesn't actually m- make sense. But that's why that election was batshit crazy because mm-hmm. it was this multicultural middle class community mm-hmm. and you're seeing this like crazy yeah. polarization but we're right? seeing that in Canada yeah is I'm gonna get back to I really sure. argue that and so to, to to answer your question when you say yeah we're hearing David Evie because there's this this rising anger as we've been talking about this mm-hmm. like I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired which exists on both the left and right so you're gonna have people on the right saying David Eby's dog whistling to his, you know, X, Y, and Z because of these things. And you're going to have people on the left saying so-and-so's dog whistling because it's all dog whistling. (laughs) It's all a bunch of buzzwords to really appeal to a base and get really, you know what? It's past a buzzword. It's to get that emotional, visceral response we were talking about to, to, to tap into that anger. But isn't that just rhetoric in general? Yeah. Yeah, except it's just seen, it's absolutely. And, and I know I have my own biases, but it's one of those things where, like when, when Trump describes immigrants as infest, infestations right. or infesting, right? right. That, I can see that why that would be a dog whistle, mm-hmm. because you're using this kind of weird language. Mm-hmm. When we had that case in, in the United States where Hillary Clinton talked about super predators, mm-hmm. right? You can see that by creating this new class of a person for primarily black people, mm-hmm. it could be dog whistling. Mm-hmm. And there's things like that that I can see, but then there's other stuff where I'm just like, I guess maybe it's dog whistling. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I do wonder how much of it is conscious 
or how much of it is just let's just get something that's going to sound visceral or exactly whatever, right? I, I same i wonder the same and I think it does come down to that emotive reaction. And that's why we hear a lot of this has existed in politics forever. Right. Sure. So so not to take it like, as you just said, isn't that just rhetoric? Yes. But we we are in this like highly polarized political climate mm-hmm. that, you know, we've talked about the Internet. We've talked about the digital, how people get their information, how they engage now civically is different. And so we're talking about stuff like dog whistling. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we are. <laughs> it's, it's, I just find media and it's media journalism. It's so hard to navigate now. I agree. As a consumer, I want to end on this note. You've had a difficult time getting comment from Bernie himself, in spite of following the party. What's your relationship with his press team, and and what's their their press team's relationship with the media in general? Good question. So I can answer the second part, um, you know, what their press team's relationship is with the media in general, because I obsessively read news articles to see whether they are quoted because they refuse to speak to me. Um, Hmm. It's been really hard. I did interview Maxime Bernier when he came to Burnaby South at the time with Laura Lynn, and um, we had a 20 minute sit down interview. And you and Bernier? Yeah, we absolutely did. It's yeah. when he told me that they, I asked him, are you a populist party? Are you appealing to populism? That was my direct question. He said, yes, we are a smart populist party. Ah. And so <clears throat> that's where my fascination was absolutely sparked. But, yeah. but to get back, ever since I started covering the party, mm-hmm. on my first story when I talked about sort of this seeming exodus of PPC members who were calling me, as we've touched on before, I had to contact his uh, major executive director. And at the time, she was the head of their communications, Joanne Many. Mm. Um, within a day of seeking comment, her Twitter was deleted and scrubbed. What? My emails were bouncing back. I started to email different members of the party, including the other head of communications. So wait, Martin what happened Mass. to her? You don't know? Yeah. No. Even to this day, you don't? To this day, I saw her quoted a month later. So clearly, what I'm trying to explain... I'm going to give you some facts. Yeah. But really what I'm trying to explain is clearly the PPC has zero interest in speaking to me. Another great example. I want to profile all of the candidates in the Burnaby North Seymour riding. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a spicy one. right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I have been reaching out to um, directly to the PPC HQ, despite me knowing they have been getting back to me for months. Mm-hmm. And sneaky journalist, I thought, OK, I'm just going to DM them the PPC Burnaby North on Twitter and I'll just DM them on Facebook and just mm-hmm. let them know, like, this is what I'm trying to do. Got back to me, super polite. Within one hour, I got a follow-up response saying, hi, Melanie Green. Um, I was told by the HQ that we are not allowed to speak with you and you will be granted no interviews from a PPC member now or in the future. Whoa. So they've targeted you. I'll say that I can't get comment at all from the PPC. And I think I tweeted out about a month ago, another story I was doing, I had a tip from a disenfranchised member who had left and who was trying to run for a candidacy um, out in Ontario, who was gay, who said that he had experienced some terrible things. That's why he'd left. I had reached out to the party mm-hmm. in regards to his allegations. And um, Martin Mass, who is Bernier's right hand man, who I've been told runs his Twitter account, um, got back to me and emailed me, get lost. And so that wait, that's it. Yeah. Get lost. Two words. I obviously responded. Yeah. And so 
I mean, my emotions are coming out here, but the truth is I get it. But what a wild world we live in. Mm -hmm. Like what a wild world. I can't, I don't think I'll ever get a comment from the PPC all the way up till October. I will continue to try. Yeah. Um, But I don't think they will ever uh, speak to me at all. Wow. Well, on on that note, yeah. if people want to follow you, if they want to hear more from you, and uh, if they want to keep track of when you get that next PPC quote, because I feel like (laughs) before the election, you'll get something. Dreams. Where do they go? What do they do? Yeah, um, I uh, work for Star Vancouver, pick up the paper at the SkyTrain, check it out online, subscribe, and you can find me on Twitter, MDG Media. Well, I really appreciate you being here. This was a very complicated topic, and there's a lot of answers we don't have, a lot of speculation, but I think it is a dialogue that hopefully in our political culture we are having, Mm -hmm. especially based on what we saw in Burnaby this past by-election. I thought it was insane, as I said, batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we as a culture discussed it enough. I agree. And I think it was our biggest cultural issue this year so far. I think our biggest political issue was Jody Wilson-Raybould and SNC-Lavalin, but I think our biggest cultural issue was this microcosm that we saw in Burnaby. Mm. We're going to see it again in October. I really do believe that. Well, I appreciate you covering it. You're doing a fantastic job, and and thanks for spending uh, this time with me. Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about all this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my pitch. Subscribe to Star Metro Vancouver. They are cranking out some incredible work that highlights unique voices and fascinating insights. And that way you can read all of the work produced by our guest this week. She is on the politics beat. She is Melanie Green. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.